Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. Centre for Mental Health challenges policies, systems and society so that everyone can have better mental health. I'm Thea Joshi and each episode I speak to people with experience of mental health difficulties, someone working in a specific area or a member of our team about mental health and social justice. And this month I sat down with David Woodhead, our Associate Director of Research, to hear about what LGBT plus History Month means to him. He shared how his experience as a gay man have affected his mental health for good and ill and about his journey from addiction to recovery. It was a really moving conversation and it exemplified the way that lived experience, albeit painful, brings a depth and a richness to our fight for better mental health. And just a reminder that Centre for Mental Health is a charity and we don't get any funding to produce this podcast. So if you find it helpful, please consider donating at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. Hope you enjoy. So welcome, David. It's wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Finally. Hello. I'm so delighted. I'm so (laughs) pleased to be here. And for LGBT History Month as well. It's great. Thank you. Amazing. And so you are our Associate Director of Research. That is right. Yes, I am. And so, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your work, but also your life. Yeah. So uh, I'm David. Uh, I'm a gay man in in his mid-50s. Sometimes I have to remind myself of that. Uh, and I've lived in London since I grew, I grew up in the in Yorkshire on the, in a small northern seaside town in the 1980s with all the joys that that brought. And uh, and when I was 18, I went to London to study at university. And uh, I was in London pretty much solidly, apart from with a couple of attempts to escape, but London <laughs> dragged me back. Uh, I've uh, been there up until last year when I moved to the coast and I now live on the south coast. And uh, yeah, I'm the Associate Director for Research. My work in life has been pretty much always about understanding inequality better and trying to work out what we can do to help. And some of that, I think a lot of that is around poverty and socioeconomic factors, but there are also people factors of which sexuality and gender are definitely two important ones that I've also spent a lot of time thinking about and living and writing about and trying to understand since I uh, kind of started to realise really my my difference when I started to understand in the early or the, the mid 1980s that uh, I was gay and what that meant and how I could make sense of that and how I could come out and how I could be kind of adjusted to all of that and make it a, you know, in, enjoy it to to its full. And to some extent, those questions are still with me. They just land differently when you're uh, middle-aged, but they're nonetheless still really pertinent. One way I'm trying to make sense of it is I write outside of work. I, I write stuff uh, badly, mainly, but poor poetry, but also I'm writing a memoir, which is which is uh, very close to finishing. Oh, I love that. And I just want to say as well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I know this stuff is really tender and personal and I'm just, I'm really grateful to you for, for being here and being able to have this chat with you. Um, and I was also going to say, uh, yes, you mentioned your writing. Um, if listeners don't know, David is a fantastic writer and um, I absolutely love the stuff that you produce. He's produced lots of um, amazing blogs for us and uh, lots of different bits. So we will link to all of that in the show notes so you can go and um, yeah, enjoy. It's great stuff. Um, so you mentioned that obviously it's LGBT History Month in February and I'd love to know what does that mean 
for you? It's interesting. It means all kinds of things, really. <laughs> yeah. Some big things, some small things. Sometimes LGPD History Month comes and goes and I don't even notice. Sometimes it comes and it, it just lands with me at a time when it's really important. Uh, I was in Bloomsbury yesterday afternoon. I was on the way to therapy, actually, to my psychotherapy, and I walked through uh, the campus of SOAS, um, and they've got a big banner outside for LGBT History Month. And it really, it reminded me of when I was like 19 or 20, and I was just coming out, and I picked up an Armistead Maupin novel, and I read it, and it, it just felt like, and when I see those banners, it feels like I, I, I can see myself in that, and I am seen we we are seen yeah and it's yeah. just so it's just so important i think it's because uh we 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 still even more than ever actually in some ways i mean the things that have happened this week kind of underscore mm. just how how uh when we're not always seen or or we're seen in with with malicious intent mm. and uh and so so that for me just that just that identification just that moment of of seeing myself and seeing us and, and in, in the eyes of others is really important. Mm. But there's something also interesting about, about LGBT history runs nowadays, which is that, you know, when when I, I mean, I used to love studying history. I did A-level history and I absolutely loved it. It was learned a lot about European history, at the modern European history and also British history. And it really formed my, my political kind of sensibilities, all that mm. study. The Russian Revolution, Second World War, all that stuff really, you know, the trade union movement in this country all really, really, really was important to me. But it was all, but history was always something over there. You mm. know, it was always, it was always something to study over there. Whereas now at 54, when I'm thinking about LGBT history, <laughs> the history is something that I've been through. And, you and were that, there. That, you were there yeah, when the history and that, happened. And that could be quite scary, actually. Mm. I mean, obviously there was lots of history before I was there. And that was also important <laughs> to me when I was reading, you know, my my fourteen year old self in my bedroom at home on an evening trying to make sense of things. I was writing very angry, very angry letters to the local paper about nuclear bombs and nuclear war, uh, and at the same time reading things like Oscar Wilde and trying mm. to make sense of the historical past. But now I'm part of that history, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and uh, and that's that's utterly terrifying, but also really really important to re to remember. Yeah. So, so that's so I, when when I first came out and I, I became quite political. There was a there was a big push at the time from, and, and I met I met really good friends at university that we all were kind of enjoined with this, and and that's a critical point about my friends at university, because when we get to the later part of my life, it was those friends that saved my life. Mm. So, mm. so, so there's a, there is something about. You. Sometimes in life you're doing something in the moment and you can't possibly understand what that will yeah, become in the future. Yeah. And I think that for, for for queer people is really important. Yeah. Um, autonomous liberation. That that was we had we had that, that that was the name of the game. That was the kind of politics that we were engaged in. And one of the things that feminists used to say very much that the, the women's movement at the time, there was this slogan which is the personal is political. Mm. Mm -hmm. And what they meant by that was was that not only do laws try to control women's bodies mm. not only do men's parliaments try to you know write what is acceptable and not acceptable for women to be and to how to act but actually conversely the things that women did were intensely political the domestic mm. sphere the you know the reproduction rights once that all that was really political was was really political there was that kind of two-way and, and and i suppose for me now i would say the historical is political mm. so so or, or the historical is personal 
or the personal is historical is what I'd say. So, so, you know, not just that I'm old, but also that, you know, nothing is without context. Mm. Everything that we're experiencing today has a root in something that happened previously. You know, there would never have been a Second World War if it weren't for the fact that Germany was under such terrible financial discipline after the First World War. There'd mm. never been a First World War if there hadn't been the problem in the book. You know, there's always, a, every story has a context, and I suppose where we are now and the things that I'm motivated to do now very much are rooted in my past, in my in my history yeah. and the things, those big moments that I went through that I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I'm intrigued, you've, you've led us on very neatly into talking about, about your own experiences and how you think some of these experiences that you've touched on have impacted your own mental health. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think... When I look back, and again, as I said, I don't think I realised at the time, but when, when I look back, there were things happening, both as a as, as, as a as a young gay man, as a young gay person, but also outside of that, that really had a formative effect on who I am. And I suppose there are big political events like the miners' strike, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wasn't a miner, I was living at the seaside, but I had family that were living in miners, in, in, in mining towns, mm-hmm. and there was this assault on them and our community. And that, at the age of 13 or 14, really opened me up to thinking about resistance and activism and kicking back and standing up for each other. And that was a kind of a first point. And I think because I was, because I knew I was gay, because I knew I was different, because I was in this small town, because I went to a Catholic school, because I couldn't speak of my sexuality to anybody, mm-hmm. I think I put a lot of my effort into other people's struggles. And it, and it, and it became a way of, it became a way of finding a voice without telling the truth about who I actually was and so and so I think I think the minor strike was was a big move for me so there's that then I came to London desperate to get away from Scarborough came to London the bright lights of London came out shortly afterwards and actually what what I came out into was glorious and good fun and I found friends friends that I still have and we went out and we had a fantastic time it was this kind of celebration and explosion of energy and youth mm-hmm. and uh, and sex and drinking and all this mm-hmm. stuff that was just, and getting dressed up and by, you know, and all this stuff. And it was a moment where the gay community really started to have this kind of confidence. It was when the venues on Old Compton Street in central London started to, started to explode and there was lots of places to go. And I had friends in Manchester and Manchester was really ablaze. All of Canal Street was all, you know, there was lots of stuff to go and do and be mm-hmm. with each other and have fun. There was a, a long shadow as well, which was around HIV and the AIDS epidemic. And even though I kind of came out into that, it missed that first wave of panic. It was still it was still around. And I remember when I was younger and I was in Scarborough and I was kind of sat on my own, utterly terrified. Part of the reason why I was utterly terrified about coming out, not just because fear of letting people down, not just because fear of, you know, kind of upsetting the apple cart at a Catholic school. Mm. But part of it was a deep fear of AIDS and mm. actually believing in, in this tiny little way, this little insular bubble up in the in, in North Yorkshire, that somehow being gay and having AIDS were the same thing. And, mm. and, and there was an inevitability about it, inevitability about the death, inevitability about the stigma which really marked me, I think. And then when I came to London and there was all that fun and it was great and I made friends, you know, had my first boyfriend and all that stuff. It was all fab. There was this fear, this deep mm. fear that, that mm. 
that for all of us, really, I can't say that I was part of that set, that cohort of gay men who started losing all their friends when people around them were dying. I wasn't part of that. Mm. But but there was a deep fear for me that mm. that was very close. And I did know people that, that were ill and I did know people that died, but they weren't my closest. They weren't in my closest circle, but nonetheless, it was there. Yeah. And I think that... I think that marked me and I think it marked all of us. I think I think there was there was something and it was also at the time of Section 28, there was a lot mm. of institutionalised hatred, mm. you know, regardless of whether Section 28 actually was, you know, what how it was implemented, just having it hanging in the mm. air that politicians were able to say those things, that sense that not only that you weren't worth as much, but pretty much that you were contagion, that, that you were mm. something that was mm. eating away at the fabric of all that was good. Was, was pretty powerful, really. Yeah. And then I remember in the early 90s, just after I graduated, there was a um, a man called Colin Ireland who uh, was picking up men in the in a pub in Earl's Court and taking them home and or going home with them and murdering them. Mm. So he was, he, and 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 I remember the 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 absolute fear. I remember not wanting to leave the house, even though I didn't go to Earl's Court. I was living in East London. I, you know, it, it would seem that I just wasn't on that. I wasn't part of that profile at the same time because I think it really just it brought to the head the fear that we were feeling about yeah. our yeah. credibility our legitimacy whether we would be protected yeah and this deep feeling that if if I'd have been picked up by that guy and murdered that the shame would be on me mm. for having been in that situation in the first place and I think this sh- this this thread of shame yeah that's that that took hold in my teens and in my 20s I think is something that I've struggled with yeah. Ever, ever since. So they were very big external things, but they had a direct impact on me and my friends, I think. And yeah. I think it, it led me later in that moment, but the behaviours that became uh, really problematic later, which is that I was drinking too much. I started taking drugs recreationally at first, having lots of sex and kind of seeking relief in ways that actually gave momentary relief, mm. actually gave me a momentary sense of fun and excitement and excess, but in the longer term, created a lot of problems for me, which I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, I I, I would love to um talk a bit more about that. It it sounds like from what you're saying that you can kind of trace back this underlying but pervasive sense of fear. And of shame, and it's and, like... and of disconnect. There is a kind of yeah. disconnection, and and in, in the disconnection, feeling that like a kind of need to overcompensate. Mm. You know, mm. I, I I was never I you know I was always the last to leave the club. I was always the last to, to go home. I was always people were packing up their bags and saying it's time to go, and I'd be like, no, just one more drink, just one. You know, it was that mm. kind of, and and I think it's interesting because I think what what I'm talking about in those external things are really important but when it comes to addiction who knows what causes it you know there's lots of theories I've spent a lot of time looking at theories so you know there's is it is, is it some kind of trauma that 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 I bore as, as a as, as a young child is it some kind of trauma that members in my family bore earlier on that actually generationally has been handed down is it because there's something in my brain that can't switch off. I don't have an off switch. I just keep going. And then, you know, is it because, um, is, is it just something inherent to me that actually means that I would have always been an addict anyway? Yeah. It's very difficult to work out. But I will say that I think 
because I was gay and because I came out in that moment and because of AIDS and because of this commercial explosion of the gay scene that was just replete with opportunity and possibility and voice and visibility, that all those things came together. And I don't know where the, I don't know what the cause is. I don't think, I think, you know, it's it's really seductive to want to draw straight lines yeah. yes. from, from one to another thing. And, yeah. and I'm not, I, and I said that for a long time. I used to say, there's a straight line from the AIDS epidemic into, mm. and actually I think it's probably more complicated, but nonetheless, those that set of circumstances what whatever I was going to be I was probably going to I would might have been an addict anyway whatever I was going to be but coming out into that public mm. health crisis coming out into that climate of fear and hate then then trying to make her trying to reconcile in a society that you know puts a huge premium on heteronormative things on marriage on family on mm. all that stuff and still does that actually uh, that sense of disconnect from which I found tried to find refuge in drinking and taking yeah. drugs and having sex and spending and all the stuff that addicts do. I think um, it, it was it was it was an explosive combination. That's really interesting. And you're right. You know, it's very tempting to want to kind of say, well, X plus Y equals Z. And you're right. It's not as clear cut as that. But it's I think it is helpful to be able to trace back and go like, okay, where did this come from? And as as you said at the beginning, like the wider context in which these things are happening, none of this is happening in a vacuum. None of our lives and the way that we act is happening in a vacuum and and the kind of culmination of factors that led you to that place. So you found yourself sort of drinking and taking drugs and having sex and spending and all of these things you've just mentioned. And where did things go from there? Well, I think, and, and also enjoying a successful career. I was 27 when... Uh, Labour came into power and Tony mm. Blair's government came into power in 1997. Suddenly the, the public sector became this kind of box of opportunity for people. Yeah. And there were all these kind of jobs looking at all these kind of things that just weren't possible before. And I I, I was working at a, a think tank that was very prestigious, still is. And from that, I became, it opened all kinds of doors for me. And that and that moment of, you know, a a, a robust and... Uh, population orientated inequality orientated public sector created all kinds of opportunities for me so I was doing good jobs I was being paid well I was under a lot of I felt as though I was under a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. deliver uh notwithstanding all the privilege that I've got as a white cisgendered man I'm not pretending it's worries me but you know I enjoyed it it was great I loved this I loved the kind of sense of authority I loved the kind of status that it brought me but at the same time, there was this dark side, which was when I wasn't at work, the the growing sense of disconnect. And I, I think it's very easy to talk about the normativity, kind of heteronormativity. But in London, for me, in the 1990s and the 2000s in particular, I was feeling there was quite a strong kind of normativity in the gay community as well. Okay. You had to look a certain way. You had to dress a certain way. You had to be going to a certain gym. You had to be going to certain clubs. You had to mm. be into certain kinds of music. And and I never really, I never felt as though I fitted in with that either. That doesn't mean that I wasn't present in amongst it all. I was probably overcompensating in all, all kinds of ways and, you know, having a great time and having a terrible time. Because the thing about drinking and drugs is that when you're in it, it's fantastic. But the next morning, if, if you know, if you manage to get some sleep between the night and the morning, the next morning is pretty, it's pretty rough. And all those things from which I sought to escape were there in a bigger 
you know, with stronger potency. Yeah. Um, and it's a cliche with 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 addiction, but you know, you you have to do you have to do more and more in order to get anything like this the the same kind of effect. Yeah. And all that was fine. It was it was all fine. It was a very fine balance of working hard and drinking hard and playing hard and trying to engage with family and see my friends and my gay friends and spending a lot of time on my own, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, because the one thing I do know about people that are in the throes of quite severe addiction is it is incredibly lonely Yeah, because you don't want people, you don't want the people that you love the most to see you at your least appealing. Yeah. So what you end up doing is you end up surrounding yourselves with people that are also in the in a similar situation mm -hmm. because it kind of minimizes possibility of judgment. Yeah. And then about my, I would say my uh late 30s, early 40s, um the hubcaps, I know cars don't have hubcaps anymore, but the hub hubcaps were loosening okay, and yeah, the yeah. nuts, the nuts were getting were starting to come off. And there was a point when you know, you 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 can kind of manage with loose <laughs> loose hubcaps until until there's a point that a wheel comes off, yeah, and then you are in trouble. And of course, once wheel, I don't want to overplay this metaphor, <laughs> but once one wheel comes off, the likelihood of the other ones coming off yeah. is 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 pretty is pretty uh, is pretty high. And very quickly, very quickly, I went from having from I think what we might have seen from the outside a very stable, well paid, status laden job. Doing good stuff in a very comfortable life. Uh, I came very close to losing it all, mm -hmm. and then I did nothing to rescue myself from that situation. And within a couple of years, I had lost everything. Mm -hmm. And and I and I mean, and that's you know, there's the material stuff, but what? Who cares about that really? I mean, that's one thing that sobriety has taught me is that I think we put a lot of value in things that really do not matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but also it was it was friendships and stuff and and, yeah. and a, a, a distance and even though I'd kept in touch with most of my friends you know one one of them said to me recently she said I thought you just disconnected from me we're housing I'd, oh. I'd go I'd go out with you and it was like you were talking to somebody else there was no connection I couldn't connect people mm -hmm. there was there was no connection and another friend to me another one said to me are you having an affair you just kind of you just disappear for days on end I don't know where you are and yeah. And that was yeah. because I was in, you know, what my sister and I call now. Uh, I mean, I think there's a whole podcast. I think there's a whole there's a whole series of books to be written about the power of sisters, <laughs> or, 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 or at the very least, the power of my sister. Yeah. Um, that we anyway we 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 now call it Narnia. This sense of you know, I used to go through the back of this wardrobe and be be part of this world that was kind of we could see what normal people were doing mm. get, getting up and going to work and having relationships and having friendships and you know getting dressed and <laughs> we could see we could see those people but they couldn't see us and what we yeah. what that kind of really dark in all senses of the word life of being a quite quite a serious addict is mm. uh, is incredibly isolating i think you've um yeah just really put words to that experience of being yeah, that isolation that loneliness that complete kind of sense of disconnection and thank you for shedding light on that um, it's my it's my pleasure when I tell these stories it, it, it sometimes does feel like a story to me because mm. I think I think it's so painful 
what what I did to myself and what I did to other people is is even though I haven't had a drink or taken any drugs for in June it will be nine years. Wow, wow. I have com- complete sobriety, which is yeah. I find really shocking because it's like it's like a third of my adult life, and I find that really amazing. That or oh, not quite a third, maybe a quarter. Um, given how much I used to drink and how much my identity, you know, if you wanted to see David, you went out for a drink. Right. I mean that that was that was you know they, that was kind of the terms of the of the deal really. I kind of just want to acknowledge that and say thank you because I know this stuff is um, raw still and it's still like just even talking about it I know can be hard. So thank you for sharing it. Um, and I'll I'll link to this. You wrote a blog after Matthew Perry's tragic death uh, last year, and um, I recently finished reading his memoir, and I know you've read it as well. And and that for me as well was another powerful insight into yeah this kind of insidious the insidious nature of addiction and the way it kind of just creeps around every part of your life and and poisons everything. And I think mm. I think there's something about the kind of desire to achieve or overachieve. Obviously, Matthew Perry's success was mm. a zillion, gazillion times more than mine. But that, but but that idea that somehow you can be seen in your 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 worth is in what people see and what you yeah. produce. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's any surprise that there may well be an overrepresentation of challenges of addiction for people who are famous, because I think I think that need to be seen and yet that fear of being seen at the same time mm. is so is so mm. deep. So you found yourself in that place. It sounds pretty desperate, very hard, as you've said, very bleak. What, I mean, I'm not suggesting there's just one turning point, but where did you see that that turn, that change? There's there's one thing worse than being an, an addict, and that's being somebody who loves an addict. Yeah, that I helplessness. And just not knowing what to do, and the fear, mm. because... As other friends have said since, they were utterly convinced I was going to die. I was going to kill myself. They were utterly convinced that that was going to happen, mm. and they could, they didn't know what to do. And that 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 morning, I didn't have I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have any I didn't have any um, anywhere to go. And I don't believe in a higher kind of power, higher order. But my phone rang, and it was my friend Julian who lived in Cairo. And Julian is a friend that I met. At university mm. uh, the first few days when I went to university and he was in Cairo and he said how are you doing and I said Julian I'm in a real mess I don't know what to do and he mm. said come here come to Cairo come to Egypt so I said well if you put the money into my account I'll buy a ticket and he said no 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 David. I'll buy you a ticket and send it to you so you know they had the measure of me because yeah. it's true I would have sp- I would have gone to a dealer and bought, and bought spent it on drugs and I went to Cairo, and that was the beginning, that combination of the realisation of what I was doing to the people that I loved the most in the world mm-hmm. and Julian's intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to Cairo, and I stayed there for several months, and that's where the... that's where the. I don't think I'd say that's where the recovery began. I think that's where the sobriety began. Okay. That That's where I was able in a country where you can't drink, you can't take drugs, you can't be actively homosexual. You know, all those things that that I was kind of in absolute abundance, like excess, mm-hmm. disastrous excess, catastrophic excess with, mm-hmm. was not possible. And it was a bit of a shock when I got there. I mean, I think the first two weeks I just slept and I was shouting in my sleep and stuff. I mean, I think Julian was really, really concerned. And then I went to live, I went to work 
on a farm in uh, Luxor, uh, in the Valley of the Kings. So wow. you'd, I'd get up in the morning and there'd be all these, all these ancient pyramids and statues of all these different pharaohs and stuff. And I was there and I was uh, feeding alfalfa to cows and it was all very, really, really small and lovely, actually. And that's where the that's where the recovery began. Mm. And I came home, and I reg- I regressed a little bit. I reg- <laughs> so I was like, I I didn't I didn't relapse, but I regressed a bit. I was so I sent sent a message to my sister saying, "Do not come and meet me at Gatwick. I don't want any fuss. Do not come." You know, like this. And uh, I got I got off the. Um, I got off the plane and I thought, I wish somebody was here to meet me. And I walked, I walked through the doors and my sister and my niece were there with the banner. And Aww. it was just Yeah. It's amazing. love, Thea. It's what it's what love is. And it saved my life. Yeah. And yeah, and 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 then that was then after that was a slow, slow rebuild. I couldn't yeah. go out, I couldn't see people. A friend of mine got married. I couldn't go to this. I couldn't go to the. In fact, two friends got married. I couldn't go to the reception. I just couldn't. Yeah. The thought of being with people, the thought of being with people who were drinking, the yeah, thought of yeah. all that stuff, and I just became, you know, a, a bit kind of reclusive. And that's when I started writing. Oh. And the writing, it was it was the writing of the poetry. The, I used to do this thing called Piff Moth, which is poems in fifteen minutes or fewer. Oh wow! I used to do every one of they were terrible. They were terrible. <laughs> But uh, it doesn't matter because I was it, the the point of it was if I did nothing else that day I yeah. I could say look I did this yeah 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 and I stayed with Hillary and that, that was good and my nephews and my niece I mean you know the kind of love that a uh, eight nine year old boys can express for their uncle David I mean one of them used to tremble uncle David say uncle David say uncle like tre- now of course. <laughs> Now, now they're 17, I say morning, and they're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, but when they're eight and 19, it was, you know, so so that that kind of helped. And it was a slow, I did a bit of consultancy work. My friends were open-armed because they knew, they kind of knew enough about me to know who I really was and not what I'd become. And, and that, yeah. you know, that love was redoubled. And I think with my sister, I always thought that mine and my sister's relationship was special. And we were close, but I don't think I was ready for that sense of closeness and intimacy that we've mm. that we now have as a result of that of that time. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you know, some good things came out of it. It's just very, it's just awful that I created so much pain on the way. Uh, and so yeah, so then I started to work, and I got bits of work, and people that I'd worked with previously that knew that I was okay, you know, kind of gave me bits of work and mm. supported me and put me in touch with the people. You know, I had lots of privilege. I kind of, all those privileges of being a white middle-class, or I became a middle-class man after university, you know, that kind of, I, I pulled on those and they kind of helped. And I'm, I'm very, very aware that other people mm. don't have those things. You know, people step forward to help me. I know that for a lot of people, people step back and let them just fall down the cracks. So I, I am aware of the privilege and the look, how lucky I've been. And then I started doing blogs for this organisation called <laughs> Centre for Mental Health. Um, uh, yeah, and then, you know, and there have, there have been setbacks along the way. So uh, about five years into, um, four years, no, three years into sober, on, on, the, on my, the third year anniversary of my sobriety, uh, I thought I've never had a HIV test. 
and I know that in the in, in all the chaos that, that I created when I was in active addiction that I took some big risks mm -hmm. and I went and I you know it came back positive and whilst it wasn't a huge surprise it was a it is a kind of constant reminder to me of yeah. the consequences of my poor mental health you know that we let that thing we talk about a lot at the center about the relationship between mental health and physical health and this kind of arbitrary kind of separation that mm, um mm. that doesn't always make sense and, and I think that was an absolute example how the consequences of of poor mental health will be with me always in terms mm. of uh my the, the the HIV that I have but I've also got a great a great clinical team uh at Chelsea and Westminster they're, they're incredible they you know so it's not all bad. And 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 I am very aware that if it had been 20 years before, I probably would be dead by now. Wow. You know, there's yeah. every morning I get up and I take take my tablets and it's kind of, you know, they 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 keep me alive. And of course, it has a huge impact on your mental health to think if I stopped taking these tablets, I would die. Yeah. But it is a chronic disease, it's not terminal in the same way. But again, you know, it's that same thing about feeling supported, finding, finding people that can, you know, and and because I have a, I'm of this age, yeah. Of my of my ten closest gay male friends, more than half of us are HIV positive. Mm, mm. So you know, it's it's um, we we try to support each other as best we can. Thank you, David, for sharing that and um, being so honest. And so you've talked about you know the amazing power of um the love of family and friends and how that can really like bring you back from the brink and are there other things that you feel kind of as we finish like that have really helped you i think the thing the thing that partly led into the, me into the trouble the, the this this idea of an abundant and pleasant and outspoken gay community is actually a real asset it's always been an asset it, it let, you know it creates opportunities for me because of who i was that were disastrous but actually, and I'm still really, you know, I, I gain sucker and pride from being part of that community. Uh, I'm always reminded of James Baldwin when he said that says that um, identity are the garments that clothe the naked self. Mm. And I think my identity is really important in kind of keeping me safe. Yeah. And so my identity as a gay man with lots of other gay men and lesbians and bisexual people and trans people uh, this month, but always is really important, really, really important. And that doesn't in any way, you know, I've got fantastic friends who are allies who have been really, really supportive and, and you know, uh, unconditional and very, very lovely and important to me. But there is something about that tethering for me and my mental health of knowing, of knowing who I am, of, of, of having somewhere to kind of hang my coat and say, yeah. I'm, that's my tribe mm -hmm. for all its flaws and all its, inconsistency and all its limitations that's my tribe and I think the the other thing that that has really helped has been uh different therapeutic interventions that have, have mm, been really mm -hmm. really helpful yeah um about all kinds of things so my, my mother died last year yeah. and it was really very very difficult for me and my therapy group that I've been in for four years now um has been incredibly su su supportive and I know that the evidence base for therapy is a little contested and I know that it's you know you can't always access it if you need it and you don't have money and all those I, I know the, the limitations but I think as a modality of being able to maintain and to find myself and to explore and to feel held and safe mm -hmm. uh, my psychotherapy is really important to me.
I do say this most episodes, but I literally could ask you a million more questions. And I'd love to just, I'd love to just sit here and listen to you talk because your stories are amazing. Like everything you've shared. Um, we do have to finish, but course, I just want to say thank you so much. No, David, thank you, Theo. You made it really you easy. You're, you're like, you're like the, the Michael Parkinson of the Centre for Mental Health. Everybody wants to talk to you. We're going to cut that bit out for sure. <laughs> no, thank um, you, Theo. I, something else as well is that, I, this is a bit of a plug for the Centre for Mental Health, which is, this is the first job I've ever had where I feel as though I can bring all this stuff with me mm. and I'm not judged. And well, that is really important. I was about to say thank you because I know that you bring all of this to you, to your work at the centre. You bring that compassion, that lived experience, that sense of wanting to be seen and wanting other people to be seen and recognised and known. You bring all of that with you. Um, to your work and it's the richer for it so thank you um I know all of this stuff is hard one and not easy to talk about but we're so grateful for what you shared today thank you for giving me the opportunity thanks so much for listening I really hope this conversation inspired you in the fight for mental health equality we rely on support to fight for change so please give what you can at centerformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate see you next time